Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest, a returning guest. We have Brian Van Norden. He's a James Monroe Taylor Chair in Philosophy at Vassar College and Chair Professor in Philosophy in the School of Philosophy at uh, Wuhan University. And Brian's a translator of Chinese philosophical texts and scholar of Chinese and comparative philosophy. He's also an expert on Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. He's published 10 books and is featured as one of the authors in the book we're discussing today, uh, Philosophy Illustrated, 42 Thought Experiments to Broaden Your Mind. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much for having me on the show again. I had a great time last time, and I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, so did we. Uh, okay, so to begin, I want to kind of go back to the basics a little bit. So I know we brought this up with Helen. However, I think that a lot of us have different interpretations of what this actually means. So before we even get into particular thought experiments, Brian, I want to hear your kind of understanding of what a thought experiment actually is and how it could be useful, right? So, and not to get in, I don't want to draw on this too much, but, you know, people always ask, like, what's the utility of philosophy, right? Why would I want to sit there and think about, like, you know, sort of forms and, you know, kind of metaphysics? and what's out there beyond what we can actually see. How is any of this useful, right? But in some way, it seems like the thought of experiment or the idea of the thought of experiment would provide a great answer to that question. So what do you think? Well, I, I guess I, the first question maybe worth addressing is the one you suggest, which is, well, why should you worry about any of these issues? And what I often like to tell my students is, you are a metaphysician, whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. So metaphysics basically just says, what are the most fundamental kinds of things that exist and how are those things related to one another? And everybody's got a metaphysics. Uh, if you think you don't, I'd say, okay, well, what do you believe in? What do you think exists? And some students will say, well, I just, I don't believe in metaphysics. I believe in natural science. Mm -hmm. Natural science comes with its own metaphysics, its own view of what exists in the world. Mm -hmm. And likewise, everybody's got their own epistemology, their own theory of knowledge. What can you know and how can you know it? So these are things that we all have opinions about. Philosophy just helps us recognize what more clearly, what is it that we think and helps us understand maybe the limitations of our current ways of thinking and some alternatives to our current ways of thinking. And a, a thought experiment, and these go back as you know, Helen's terrific book illustrates, in multiple traditions around the world, you're asked to think about a particular situation. And then what's your sense of what would happen in the situation or what would be true in this situation? And one of the, the most famous thought experiments or Gedanken experiments as they call it in German uh, was done by Einstein who uh, was imagining supposedly, I don't know if this is a myth, but supposedly he imagined this while he was on his way to a job at a patent office. Um, he was imagining, well, suppose I were sitting on a particle and I was traveling at the speed of light and I was looking at a beam of light, what would I see? And he realized, boy, that would be weird because light is supposed to be a wave, but a wave is something that's supposed to be in motion. But if I was traveling at the speed of light, the wave wouldn't be in motion. And and how could that be? And that eventually led to actual testable results in, uh, in physics. But other thought experiments can just help us get clearer about what we really believe about different situations or what we believe about the structure of the world or human motivations. Mm. And they're a very vivid way for seeing 
what you think about certain philosophical issues. So that's kind of a, a way of thinking about what they are. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the intuition pumps that Daniel Dennett describes. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Think about like something that pumps out your intuition, like gives you a sense of like, well, what kind of intuitions, what reflective views do you have about this situation or this case? Right. Yeah, and then so, go ahead, Al. No, no, uh, go ahead, Leon. Yeah. Well, so yeah, and I was going to ask, obviously, and the first chapter is uh, pretty, I think it was the first chapter. Either, yeah, I think the first or the third, probably the first. Um, so the first chapter is essentially devoted to your chapter, right? Or it is your chapter. And so can you tell us about who Meng Shi was and obviously the thought experiment of the sprout of benevolence? Yeah, well, Mengzi... He oh, Mengzi, okay. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's right. Not a big deal. Uh, yeah, Mengzi... Uh, sometimes also known by the Jesuit Latinization of his name, Mencius, is sometimes called the second sage of Confucianism, meaning second in importance only to Confucius, Kungza himself. He's that influential in the Confucian tradition. And Mengza wanted to respond, wanted to defend the Confucian tradition against alternative philosophical systems in his era. And in particular, one of the philosophical systems he was responding to was the philosophy of a guy named Yang Ju. Mm-hmm. And Yang Ju was probably a kind of ethical egoist. Sure. Now, what does that mean? An ethical egoist is somebody who says, look, people have lots of different motivations, uh, but the only motivation that you ought to have, the only motivation that it's justified or right, or rational to have is to do what is in your individual self-interest. And so you should be, in the words of Yangju, Wei Wu for oneself. And the the particular way that Yangju argued for this was kind of interesting. Yangju said that human nature is to be self-interested. So Yangju admitted there are some people who pursue things other than self-interest But he said that those were perversions of human nature. And if you were following your true nature, you'd be purely Mm self-interested. An analogy I sometimes use with students is think about a a bonsai tree. Now, to us, of course, bonsai trees are really beautiful and, and, and intriguing. But if you think about it, a bonsai tree, the whole point of it is it's not a tree that has achieved its natural size or its natural form. Mm -hmm. We've put it in a really shallow container and we trim it so it can't grow naturally. And as a result, it serves our needs, (laughs) but it doesn't realize its own nature. So Yang Ju, this isn't his example, but he'd say that human beings who pursue something other than self-interest are kind of like a bonsai tree version of a human being. We're artificial warped versions of human beings who aren't pursuing what is in their own individual Mm self-interest. So Mengzi wanted to defend Confucianism, which is, we we talked about in a previous podcast, uh, advocates things like uh, benevolence and compassion for the suffering of other humans and Confucians think that you find fulfillment by being a member of a community. Maybe it's a family. uh, Hopefully it's also your broader community, but that's what the human, the way, the right way to live is, is to be part of a community. And so 
your well-being is tied into the well-being of others and your concern for others is part of what makes you a human being. Mm-hmm. So Yang Ju's philosophy was very opposed to this. So Mengzi thought, well, how can I argue against this? And he came up with the thought experiment of the child about to fall into a well. Mm-hmm. And Mengzi says, imagine a human who all of a sudden saw a child about to fall into a well. And in this, this book, Philosophy Illustrated, uh, Helen de Cruz, in addition to editing and inviting people to write individual chapters, um, also uh, wrote, did these beautiful illustrations for it. Um, by the way, I'm just gonna let you know, uh, my spoiled French bulldog is very upset that my wife went to get dessert after this podcast (laughs) and he routinely if either one of us leaves the house he goes to the window and he howls even if the other person in the house reminds him that he's there so if you hear a dog howling in the distance i promise he is not being mistreated (laughs) (laughs) not being spoiled by two people at once very much so (laughs) anyway mangza says that imagine all of a sudden you see a child about to fall into a well, what's a normal human being's reaction? And he says, well, any normal human being in the situation, don't you think their reaction would be alarm and compassion at the plight that's about to befall the child? And and this would be because the reaction is sudden. And he uses the tiny Chinese term, meaning in classical Chinese sudden, Mm -hmm. because it's sudden, you don't have time to think about how, saving the child or the death of the child might influence you. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to think about, oh, gee, you know, I bet if I save this kid, the parents might give me a reward. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I bet if that kid falls in the well, he's going to be crying all night and it's going to keep me up. Mm-hmm. All you can think of is, oh, my gosh, that kid's about to be hurt. And so that sudden and genuine feeling of alarming compassion shows that benevolent reactions are part of your nature, contrary to young Jews claim that it's natural to be purely Mm self-interested. And one way that, you know, I think it's a great thought experiment, but to to motivate it for contemporary audiences, I sometimes in classroom will use video footage um, of things like there's one video, uh, a colleague, introduce me to and it's a mother taking her child to work mm-hmm. and they're at the top of the stairs and they're doing construction and so the railing is missing on the stairs mm-hmm. and the child innocently walks to the edge of the railing and just as he starts to fall the mother lunges and grabs the child mm-hmm. and i've shown this video to a classroom of 200 students you hear 200 human beings gasp audibly mm-hmm. as the child starts to go over the edge and then sigh with relief as they can see the mother grabs the child and pulls them back in. Right. And I say, see, that reaction you had, that's the feeling of alarm and compassion Mungza talks about. Mm-hmm. That's a normal human reaction. And the fact that you had that reaction shows that Yangju's wrong about human nature and Mungza's right about benevolence being part of human nature. I have a question about that. Um, I can definitely, uh, you know, understand where um, you're coming from, especially if I had seen that video of the baby as well about to fall. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'd have that same sudden reaction. 
I believe I was on a, a roof hanging out with my friends for July 4th. And one of my friends, uh, his girlfriend was uh, sitting on the edge of the roof, legs dangling over the edge. And I couldn't fight the feeling of just feeling like, okay, I can't even look at her. I don't even want to look at her. I, I'm just imagining her. Fall. I don't want anything to happen to her. So yeah, I do understand that example. But uh, how do we know that that uh, that jaw, that sudden reaction, is is benevolent uh, in in its in its uh, origination? Like, isn't it just a reaction uh, by its like mm-hmm. you're alerted to what's happening and then you sort of decide where to go with it? Is that yeah. yeah, yeah, I see. I see the concern. Yeah. And so one way of seeing why it's a benevolent reaction is thinking about the difference in the way we react to other things. So if I'm sometimes if I'm killing time on the Internet, uh, I don't know if you've seen these, but they have videos of people dropping things off of high structures. Right. I saw one video where they were dropping watermelons and uh, soda containers interesting thing about soda containers, you can drop them from remarkably great heights and they will bounce without actually bursting. It's amazing. They're designed to do that. Uh, Bowling balls also, you would think if you drop them from like 50, 75 feet, they'll burst. They bounce because they're designed to do things like that. Watermelons, of course, splat. But in each case, it's fun and interesting to watch. You're like, oh, I wonder what that's going to do. Is that going to bounce? Is that going to break? I know it's a terrible thing to even say, but think of how different your reaction would be if that were a child. So in the case of an inanimate object, you're like, because you don't care about the well-being of the bowling ball, whether the bowling ball bursts or bounces is just a matter of idle curiosity. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the child falling into the well, it's not a matter of idle curiosity. You're not like, yeah, I wonder what's going to happen. Is the kid going to drown right away? Will they drown after a while? Will they hit their head? Hmm. No, your reaction is horror. And that shows that the only explanation is that, well, you care about the child, whereas you don't care about the well-being of a bowling ball. Right. Right. Yeah. And this makes me think of uh, just sort of, I guess it's pretty notable now, and it's kind of been repeated over and over again, the quote from Hume, where he says essentially that reason is the slave of the passions. Mm -hmm. So it's what we're talking about here in this thought experiment, this kind of the intuition that it's supposed to elicit. Um, Is it the idea that essentially that, well, fundamentally the way we make decisions and the way we make especially ethical decisions, it's more so based on our emotions and our kind of, um, let's say desires more so than it is based on reason. Where Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is that essentially you feel a sense of empathy, right? Right? then you feel a sense of sympathy. And then what you're doing is essentially you're asking yourself really quickly, obviously, especially in the case of trying to uh, save a child is how do I sort of, how do I, how do I uh, do something that's compassionate, right? How do I um, act in a benevolent way? And essentially in some fundamental way, how do I help me feel better, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to suffer, right? I don't want to sure, see this sure. kid drown. Like that's awful, right? So it's mm-hmm. like both, right? I want to both protect the child and myself, but is what the thought of experiment essentially saying is that this is fundamentally based in our emotions. That's a, that's a great question, and it's, it's terrific that you bring up Hume. The debate between Hume and Kant on the moral status and the moral relevance of our emotions is fascinating and continues to be uh, relevant. Uh, and what Hume, as you correctly point out, said was that morality is more properly felt than judged. And that reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. And so what that meant for Hume was uh, you just have 
passions or feelings or emotions. And then reason's only job is to figure out how to satisfy those passions or those emotions or those motivations. And so reason, Hume claimed, can't motivate you by itself. And this suggests that, and Hume actually buys into this implication, that there's never anything irrational about or incorrect or inaccurate about your emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. So Hume also famously says in his Treatise of Human Nature that it's not irrational to prefer the scratching of an itch on my finger uh, to, uh, you know, uh, the prefer satisfying that even if the cost were the destruction of the entire human species. Right. You know, so it's just that that's how you feel. That's how you feel. Now, in contrast, Kant came along and um, Kant agreed that we can't morally assess your passions. They just are what they are. But then Kant claimed that reason could actually motivate human actions directly and that reason could discover moral rules. So a lot of the debate in modern Western philosophy has been about is reason something that can motivate you? And is it the source of morality? Or can only your passions motivate you? And are they therefore the source of morality? I think Mungs's view is actually, turns out to be closer to an earlier view of the emotions you find in thinkers like Aristotle, which is that emotions and reason are not completely separate, but our emotions are often informed by our uh, perceptions of the world. Our, my cat has decided that it would like to visit too. That's <laughs> my cat's tail, will no doubt. She'll no doubt come up here. Pretty Alan soon. has one too somewhere running around. Yes, somewhere back there on the couch. Yeah. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but so for example, um, we often have emotions because we perceive the world in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And Uh, As I understand it, you know, part of the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy is changing your perceptions of the world so that your emotions gradually change. And that doesn't mean we can magically just change our feelings just by changing a thought, but it does mean that by changing our perceptions, we can gradually shape our emotions because emotions and perceptions go together. So to have a compassionate reaction, to have the emotion of compassion, is to recognize the suffering of another sentient being and to have a negative emotion in response to that recognition. If I realize that, for example, the howling sound I'm hearing isn't a dog in physical pain, but is instead a highly pampered French bulldog that is just objecting to the fact that one of its human caretakers has dared to leave the house for a few minutes. Well, I don't feel the the same to say, well, do I feel compassion for Diego? If Diego were an actual, that's my dog's name. If Diego were in actual pain, I would. Mm -hmm. But when I recognize, no, that's the sound he makes when either one of us leaves the house for even five minutes, I don't have the feeling of compassion anymore Mm -hmm. uh, because my perception is different. A similar example would be, certainly we can have free-floating anxiety, and this is a problem humans can have. Many humans are having this in the pandemic. You just have a sense of anxiety. 
But part of what distinguishes anxiety from fear is in the case of fear, you can localize what it is you're afraid of. Right. Like, oh, I'm afraid that that person who was sneezing without a mask on, you know, might give me an illness or the person who was, that's not a COVID symptom, but uh, you know, that person who was coughing without a mask on, you know, might, you know, give me, uh, you know, COVID or I'm afraid that a tiger uh, might notice me and attack me. And so you have to have a specific thing that you're afraid of if we traditionally call it fear. Right. So I'd say for Mungs as well, it's not that you just have a passion that doesn't have any cognitive content and then you try to figure out how to relieve it. It's that your passions reveal aspects of reality to you. And then you've got to respond to those aspects of reality that are revealed by your emotions. Right. Yeah, why I love that interpretation so much. Um, I don't know if either one of you have ever um, seen the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on Junior Seau, the linebacker from the San Diego. No, no, no. Okay, so th there's a, a really great scene in the documentary where, um, so essentially, so Junior Seau, how it's CTE, you know, the kind of chronic, uh, it's a pretty, oh. much, yeah, yeah, the concussion brain injury. So mm -hmm. for him, he had really difficult relationships with like, oh, well, first of all, he always had difficult relationships with his family members, but in particular, his relationships with his kids ended up souring, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, he was pretty much, he was absent, he was neglectful, he was uh, pretty much like womanizing at this point, addicted to gambling. He was like in Vegas every single week. And so there was this fundamental part in this documentary where I think it was his daughter. It may have been the son, but I think it was his daughter where, you know, she sits, she sees him. And then she, so he's just staring up into kind of like just nowhere, right up into the void. And she asks like, you know, like dad, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, I need your attention. And so he says like, I don't know how to love you. He's like, I just, I don't even know what that means. He's like, I don't know if I even do. Right. And so why that seems so important is that because, you know, if we're thinking about doing sort of a, like benevolent and things and acting and acting in a way that's I guess in this case uh, dutiful right because he is her father it seems like that intuition that emotion that would drive a person to make that decision when it's sort of severed right that person automatically doesn't know what to do or at least can't make himself do it or herself right so with Seo I think like he he knew how to be a good father like that's absurd right to think that he didn't because I mean he was a good father all throughout before you know before the injuries kind of piled up but mm -hmm. there was a point where you know essentially as an adult as, as he was like a 50 no maybe 40 something year old man at this point and for him to say like i don't know how to love you you would think like wow man because the emotion is not there it seems like the activity that would normally follow that kind of emotion can't exist without it yeah and, wow. and so and this is like i think mental health requires both certain feelings but also perceptions of the world and i think part of the wisdom of the ancients both in china and in ancient greece was to see these things go together it's, it's kind of like, I mean, we see this also in Plato, who's got this wonderful account of erotic love in the symposium. And for Plato, eros, uh, it, it, it involves our conception of erotic, where it's like sexual attraction to some, someone or something that we find sexually desirable. But it's really eros is any kind of attraction where you recognize the value of the, the thing you're attracted to. And so it could be wisdom. It could be, you know, uh, it could be the beauty of virtue. Socrates is notoriously ugly, but in many ways, he's the most beautiful of all the Athenians because of his character. Mm -hmm. And so 
uh, Alcibiades, who's a leading and very handsome statesman in ancient Greek, ancient Athens, is got an erotic attachment to Socrates because of Socrates' spiritual beauty. Mm-hmm. But Socrates can't love Alcibiades back because, and Socrates comes close but doesn't quite say this directly, Alcibiades is only beautiful on the outside. He's not beautiful on the inside. Wow. It's not true beauty. Mm-hmm. And but the whole point of this is Plato is saying that your love reveals truths to you about the world if you really think about what love is about. What is it you love about somebody? And that shows you something valuable about the world. You might misunderstand and think somebody's got something valuable when they don't, but just the experience of love will show you what kinds of things you ought to really love if you listen to it. So our emotions can also teach us facts about the world when we realize that they're not completely separate from perception and reason, I think. Well, I love that. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. And and speaking about love um, in terms of being partial to someone or impartial, I was wondering if maybe we could talk about that thought experiment about the... um, Well, Al, uh, wait, can can we not move on just yet? Sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Cause I do have a question just going back to, uh, Monksa. Okay. Monksa. Yeah, you got it. You got okay. Monksa. Uh, yeah. So we talked about, um, well, or at least, you know, we read about rather, um, the sprout of benevolence, right? Mm-hmm. So what does it mean for something to exist in this potential, right? Because the way I think people would normally think of it is, is let's say if human nature is potentially good, but yet it isn't good in terms of what we see on the surface, right? Then can't we say that it's maybe even possible that that potential isn't even there in the first place? So how do we know, right? So how do we know right. that human potential is in some way distorted as opposed to just saying, well, some people are born bad. Right. You raise a a great point. I mean, Mungza has very carefully chosen his metaphors here. So as you point out, he goes on to say, well, so the, the compassion you have for the child about to fall into a well is the sprout of benevolence. And he's chosen a very precise agricultural metaphor because the sprout of a plant is not the full-grown plant. As I say with my students, the sprout of an apple tree is not going to give you apples. But the sprout, if given the right kind of environment and the right kind of nurturance, will become the tree that can then give you the apples. So likewise, Mungza says, look, humans innately have these incipient dispositions towards virtue. And he mentions four of them. He says we have an incipient tendency towards uh, benevolence, compassion for others. We have an incipient tendency towards integrity or righteousness, which is kind of a disdain or ethically informed sense of shame about being, turning into the kind of person who would do shameful things. We've got a a kind of beginnings of practical wisdom, judging right and wrong and pursuing our goals. And we've got a, a kind of sense of deference or respect for others that manifests in the virtue of propriety. So you've got benevolence, righteousness or integrity, wisdom and propriety as the four cardinal virtues, but they just exist as sprouts in most of us. And one of the implications of that is we're not born fully virtuous. Virtue is something we have to achieve, hopefully with the help of our community but also by our own efforts to become a better person. Mm-hmm. And I think another aspect of the wisdom of the ancients was that they thought of life in terms of a process in which you realize your full potential, 
not one in which you're either born having or not having uh, a fully virtuous nature. Okay. Alistair McIntyre is one of my, my favorite philosophers, and he points out that at the beginning of the modern era in the West, science rejected Aristotelian physics, which was uh, discuss Aristotle discussed physics in terms of the actualization of potentials. And whatever you think about the strengths and weaknesses of Aristotle's physics, it, it's certainly true that modern natural science has given us much more power to predict and control the world than Aristotelian physics did. Mm -hmm. um, but in McIntyre points out that in rejecting the potentiality actuality distinction in physics, people also gave up on talk of potentiality and actuality in ethics. Mm -hmm. And so they gave up on this ideal, that idea that we have potential that could be fully realized with the right kind of environment and the right kind of effort. Right, right. So people started to think of themselves as either, well, I guess I'm either born a sage, um, I'm either born someone like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Abraham Lincoln or whatever, or if I'm not, and I'm not, I guess I'm just a, a horrible person and that's all I'm ever going to be. And we forgot, yeah, most of us are not really horrible human beings, but we're, and we're also not saints, but we're people who can get closer to being sages or saints if we make an effort. And so that transformation of your sprout of virtue into the full-blown virtue, that's something I think is, is really important. Um, and, it, and it helps to explain why some people don't seem to be virtuous despite having these sprouts. Because Mengzi says, look, it's not like we're born virtuous. Even bad people sometimes show compassion Right. or sometimes have a sense of shame about certain things. Only the very worst people never have those reactions at all. Mm -hmm. But what the difference is between the really good person and the bad person is the good person recognizes when they have these good reactions and they cultivate them and they like those aspects of themselves. Whereas the bad person doesn't make an effort to cultivate their good reactions when they have them, or they're ashamed of their good reactions when they have them. Some people are ashamed to feel compassion. Some people are ashamed to be ashamed of anything. Yeah, and it's, it reminds me of a movie Alan and I just saw a couple of months ago, which I'm sure many people have saw. I'm not even advocating for seeing this movie. I mean, unless you're like a fan, you're not going to love it. So it's a Sopranos film, The Many Saints of Newark. Oh, okay. And so, and if for, for people who've seen it, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Because we're so used to seeing Tony Soprano as like this like pretty big piece of shit. Like he's, you know, incredibly narcissistic in the series. But then as a kid, he's like an incredibly sweet kid. And you're like, mm -hmm. holy shit, right? So if there's any like big takeaway from the film, it's in terms of the sort of developmental psychology of it. When you see this person who is essentially good, right? So there's a scene where, um, Alan, you'll probably remember it. Remember when they were sitting at the table and then little Christopher starts crying and Tony gets really upset and he's like why is the little baby cry i don't understand i didn't do anything to him right <laughs> and to think that in 20 years like tony soprano wouldn't give a shit if he made anybody cry like it's not even it would be like the furthest thing from his mind but in that film when he's still a kid and a teenager he it's really upsets him that he heard of little baby's feelings that this, this thing that's completely irrational yeah es essentially uh, when watching the movie yeah you get the feeling that tony the main character as Leon says, he's a, he's a, he's a good kid. Uh, he's really smart. 
<clears throat> but his environment is is poisonous to him. Uh, he has uh, criminals around him. He has an uncle who he idolizes, who is uh, like a crime boss. His uh, his mother, uh, I, f- I forget, she doesn't pay too much attention to him or or yeah, she's super, she's self, super self-absorbed, right? So we don't know the diagnosis, right? We could say depression, maybe some other underlying issues, but yeah, incredibly self-absorbed. self-absorbed. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's an excellent point. A, a, a similar example, um, I read, I've read some biographical accounts of Mao Zedong. Mm. And uh, I mean, it, I have a whole lecture, I have an hour long lecture on the development of modern China I gave with my students, but Mao ended up becoming one of the the worst dictators and uh, cr- uh, crime people who committed crimes against humanity of all history, you know, millions of people died and suffered and were tortured because of, of Mao Zedong. But the the records we have of Mao as a young man, he seemed like a very sweet and idealistic young man. Wow. But and I asked one you know Chinese friend what he thought about this. And he pointed out, he said, you know, Mao uh, either became alienated from or uh, from many family members and all of his children eventually died. Um, And one of them was killed in the Korean War Mm -hmm. um, fighting against the United States. And so gradually all the people who connected Mao to humanity at large died or became alienated from him. Um, and so by the end of his life, he just became increasingly isolated and those sprouts of compassion for other human beings gradually withered and died. And Mengzi says, he's asked at one point, you've been advising this ruler, why haven't you been able to make him into a sage? And Mengzi says, you know, whatever sprouts are there, I'll make them start to grow, but then I've got to leave and someone else will come in. And it's like a sprout that gets one day of sunlight and 10 days of freezing cold. Wow. It's not going to grow. Wow, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it's a great metaphor. The environment can have a great effect. I, before we leave the, the story of the, the child about to fall into the well, one thing that often comes up when students hear about this thought experiment is they'll say, well, <clears throat> what about sociopaths? What about people who don't have compassion? So, and I sometimes, to illustrate this, I'll use a slide and lecture of Hannibal Lecter. Um, and I also, but then I have to tell my students who Hannibal Lecter was because they don't, they don't remember Silence of the Lambs, unfortunately. And I'm like, trust me, watch the movie. If you like thrillers, it's a great thriller. But Anthony Hopkins' character in Silence of the Lamb, obviously he wouldn't, you know, might be, would find it, in, would view a child falling into a well the same way any of us would view a bowling ball you know, falling into a well. Like, wow, interesting, what sound will it make when it lands? And interestingly, Mungza had thought about that case as well. And he's got another metaphor that he uses to talk about it, the metaphor of Ox Mountain. And Ox Mountain, he said, was a mountain that originally was very verdant, but it bordered on two populous states. And so the people from each state came to the mountain to harvest the timber. And then after all the timber was harvested, people would graze their ox and sheep on the mountain. So it's called Ox Mountain. And they ate away all the undergrowth. And Mungza actually knows a lot about ecological preservation and ecological damage. He talks about it in several passages. And he says, 
Ox Mountain's now barren because he knows that if you deforest a mountain, then the topsoil is going to run off and nothing will grow there anymore. That's why it's important to reforest after you harvest. And Mungza said, people look at the mountain now and they're like, well, I guess that's the way the mountain's always been. There's nothing growing there. He says, but that's not the nature of the mountain. Likewise, he says, there are people who don't seem to have any sprouts of virtue, but that's not their nature. It's a matter of what has happened to them and what they've done that has destroyed all the sprouts that were there so that people looking at it now believe that it never had sprouts. So Mungza's hypothesis is that people that we might call sociopaths are people who had sprouts, but the sprouts were destroyed by a bad environment. And I know there are different theories about what makes sociopaths and some about some theories emphasize innate factors and some environmental factors, but it's interesting that Mungza had considered this possibility. He after all lived in a time of intense warfare and suffering. So he had a realistic view of the limits of huge human um, you know, evil. But he gave an account in saying most people, people who are normal have the sprouts, but admittedly, you can have humans who've been destroyed and their natural inclinations are no longer visible. Right. And this is a lot like Alan, to be honest with you. So, Alan, a question for you, man. So for, uh, for the cynics of the world, which includes myself sometimes, right? How does it help you to see human nature as fundamentally good and as people as fundamentally good? Well, well it's... First- Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. I said, go ahead. You answer. I apologize. No. So uh, first of all, I thought when you said Alan knows all about this, I knew all about Ox Mountain. I thought that was an insult, but I I, I did. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) But uh, no, uh, but yes, um, essentially, I mean, I I just feel like uh, anyone, any, anyone who has a, a perspective essentially believes they're correct in their perspective. They have some sort of rationality behind why they believe what they believe is true. And most people uh, will believe whatever they're doing is right. Right. And I like to uh, try to put myself in their position and try to see what they see. How did they reach their conclusion? Because I also reach my own conclusions as well as, as do both of you. And somehow we come out to believe that we're, um, if not correct, that there, there's just something to our perspectives. Right. So because I think that that person is kind of like me, they must have come out to whatever reasoning um, they felt is sufficient. I like to think that maybe maybe they're not so different from me. Maybe it's somebody who's uh, worth understanding and trying to understand. And um, in the attempt of trying to understand that person, usually um, you can find some sort of commonality and, and you don't necessarily see people as inherently uh, evil. They might just have their own reasons for how they come to their conclusions. Um, you see this all the time in politics too. I mean, just because, I mean, it's, it, this is going to be a very simplistic sort of way of portraying this, but just, uh, that basic, uh, thing of, uh, the left versus the right. Well, is it, is, is it true that whoever is on the side of the left immediately has to think that whoever has the right perspective is uh, evil or they're wrong or deluded or the same vice versa. Um, no, they've just come to different conclusions. Um, they're using the same sort of rationality that you use. They just had different either environmental influences or different sort of reasons posed to them or sophistry even 
or it doesn't even have to be sophistry. It could be facts as well. And yeah, it doesn't mean we have to fight each other and see each other as, as different from one another. And that I, I, I'm not sure if that really. No, I love that. Me. Yeah. And I think sure. what you're saying is that essentially you started with the belief of like human nature is fundamentally good and at least, you know, to a good extent, like rational. Right. And then you saw the evidence kind of uh, or you saw like the experiences bore fruit. Right. Where you essentially saw that as you tried to get to know to get to know somebody who had some sort of opposing view to you, that you saw that, oh, their view makes sense. And it's not that they're a bad person per se. Right. They just might be ignorant or just might be ill-informed or uh, let's say, you know, might in this particular case be irrational what's up you know i would say this uh so i'm uh, it doesn't necessarily i don't necessarily believe that uh people are it's not that they're inherently good it's not exactly what i start out with i just uh, believe that they have their reasons for how they come out to their um conclusions right. so um in trying to understand them it's easier to sort of have a, a conversation and um kind of try to reach an understanding away from conflict but i don't necessarily think that everyone is uh good or has the best intentions but when you understand what someone's intentions are and you could sort of um discuss it with them and maybe meet their needs or help to meet their needs and kind of express what your needs are mm -hmm. and uh express that you fully understand what it is that they're where they're coming from so this way they feel understood by you then there's some sort of common understanding I, I I mean, I like to generally start with the assumption that people are good. I'm just, um, I like to be open to the possibility that other things exist, even though 90% uh, of the time, if I assume they're good and usually, usually they are. So, yeah. I hear you. And, and so, Brian, what about you? What is your understanding of human nature? Do you think that we're fundamentally good? Well, I, I think I like the way the Mungza thinks about it, that we've got sprouts, but they have to be cultivated. And so we're not intrinsically good um, in the sense of being fully virtuous, but we have a capacity to be virtuous. And part of the reason it makes a difference is that, and this was the issue Mungza faced too, if you tell people that they're incapable of being compassionate, or that the only motivation that humans have is self-interest, or the only motivation they ought to have is self-interest, that's going to squelch these compassionate reactions they have. It's going to make them feel that compassion is a weakness on their part. Mm -hmm. And people who've been taught that are going to give you a certain kind of society. And I don't want to live in a society of people who've been taught that it's a weakness or a deformation of their character or an absolute impossibility that you could have compassion for others. Right. Uh, and there's a nice passage. It's actually the first passage in the, the Mungza. Mungza's writings are just called the Mungza. Um, and I translated them. Uh, others have done so as well. But the very first passage in the Mungza, he's talking to a ruler and the ruler says, uh, well, sir, you've come so far to give me advice. You must have some very good advice about how I can profit my kingdom. And it's a perfectly polite question, but Mungza thunders back, why must you mention profit? And he tells the king that if you tell people to emphasize profit, even if you think, well, we're going to work at the profit 
of the kingdom as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's going to teach people to weigh everything in terms of profit and loss. Right. And in the long run, that will lead to people becoming self-centered and centered on their own individual family or their own individual well-being, and they'll end up betraying others. Whereas, Mengzi says, if you tell people to cultivate their compassion from others, their sense of integrity, their wisdom, their uh, their uh, etiquette and propriety, you will end up profiting mm-hmm. by, by not en- aiming at it directly. So I think that's why it's, it's important to see the wisdom behind what Mengzi is saying, that we do have this potential and realizing that potential is realizing our full potential as humans, not doing something that's alien to us. Uh, there was a, a book if, that came out many years ago. Uh, honestly, I don't I didn't think it was a great book, but the title was great. The title was Ethics and Other Liabilities. And I think that's a great title because that summarizes how we often think of ethics. And I, and I think really Kant, although he's a brilliant philosopher in many ways, encouraged this mistaken way of thinking about ethics because Kant says that your morality shines through most clearly when you have to act against your own self-interest. Mm-hmm. So Kant doesn't say that morality is necessarily opposed to self-interest, but he, he says these are different things. And what's most impressive is what you do, what is right against your own self-interest. And this leads people to think that, oh, I get it. Morality is about doing things that aren't good for me. Mm-hmm. But as Mungza points out, if morality is not good for you, why would you want to be moral? Isn't that going to lead you to hate morality? And Mengzi says, but in the long run, morality is good for you. If you have to pick a life, you want to pick a life of compassion and integrity. You don't want to pick a life of self-centeredness and duplicity. You will be happier, all things considered, with the virtues as part of your character than the vices. And just speaking as an armchair psychologist in ethics, some of the saddest, most unhappy people I know are the ones who are most selfish and the ones who seem to have the most uh, joy in their lives and be the most together are, you know, people like like you guys who seem very compassionate towards others and to care about being a a kind and good person. Oh, can we kind of, I'm sorry, Alec, I just, because I just want to pick up on this thread before we head off. Can, can you dive deeper into that? Like, because that sounds so counterintuitive, right? Why would a selfish person who's constantly benefiting, right? And constantly sort of uh, reaping the spoils of the world, why would they be more depressed and let's say sad in the long run, as opposed to somebody who's, let's say, I don't know, more charitable? Yeah, th- there's a name for this in, in Western philosophy. It's called the paradox of egoism. Mm. Um, and the, the, the label is in Western philosophy, but I think the insight was recognized in lots of traditions, including the Confucian tradition. Uh, it's that, it, again, it seems like if you want to benefit yourself, well, gee, shouldn't I just focus on myself? But if you're just, first of all, if you're just focusing on things like wealth and prestige and power, those things aren't intrinsically valuable. And I'm not saying that is, oh, this is this kind of high thought, you know, philosophical thing. They don't think that these things are intrinsically valuable. No, think about it. Suppose you had great wealth, but you didn't have any friends. 
you were sad, you didn't have anything that meant anything to you in life. Um, I sometimes tell my, my students the story of Citizen Kane, and I'm, I'm horrified they don't know the movie anymore. <laughs> but of course, the whole point of Citizen Kane, which is, I, I think the basic claim is very realistic. A guy's got a lot of money, and he's been very influential in his life and very, very famous, but he's just not happy because those things, wealth and fame and influence and power, they're useful as tools to get other things, but they're not intrinsically valuable. I mean, if we had all the wealth in the world, but you had no one to share it with, you know, how would that be any fun? So ironically, and this is the paradox of egoism, the best way to look after yourself is to care about things other than yourself. So I care about my family and my children and my students and my pets, like the cat who's just beneath the camera here and the dog who's now happily sleeping on the floor. But because I care about all these things other than myself, my life is very rich and it's filled with things that give me joy because I care about these other things. Whereas if I didn't have these things independently of myself that I cared about, and I was just on this treadmill of just trying to get more wealth, trying to get more fame, trying to get more power, even if I got those things, because they're not intrinsically valuable, they wouldn't by themselves make me happy. When I get wealth, I'm like, oh, good. I can do things like I can buy uh, something nice for my kids or even things like I can pursue one of my hobbies like poker. But again, poker is interesting to me that, and that's not an altruistic activity, but it's an activity that I find intrinsically interesting. And so that's why it's fun to play poker because I care about the game and I find it intrinsically intellectually challenging. So just caring about things besides yourself makes your life richer and gives you opportunities for joy. Whereas the more you focus on yourself, the less you have in your life that's intrinsically valuable and the more vulnerable you are to things going wrong. I love that. Alan, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, essentially um, acting against your own. Well, first of all, I'd like to tag what you just said, which is that um, essentially when you're uh, focused on yourself, focused on your, on your ego and, and these egoic aims, you're not, you're and and then as opposed to being uh, interdependent and living in a community and offering value to your family to friends to students to others in general if you be, you're like a smaller person when you only care about yourself however uh who you are extends sort of beyond yourself when when you act in interdependence or interrelation with all these different people um Another way to think about it is, um, and I guess this is kind of what I wanted to say before, is uh, when you're acting against your own self-interest, like um, you're essentially breaking, you're almost breaking open your ego, so to speak, because you're, you just, your ego just uh, by default wants to use as little energy as possible, uh, try to stick with what's familiar, whatever is known to you doesn't want to necessarily delve outside of it, has resistance whenever you deal with things outside of what you're used to or uh, your ego boundaries. But every time that you kind of break those boundaries, you discover more of yourself, so to speak. Not like the ego sort of self, but 
something beyond who you think yourself to be, who you believe yourself to be. And it feels very um, satisfying to kind of break those boundaries. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, um, there are some days when, uh, I mean, not, not including today or anything like that, but maybe like, let's say uh, for podcasting, let's say it's really early in the morning and we couldn't get the guest, you know, at 12 PM or later in the afternoon, like today. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not feeling it, but uh, the act of going against those emotions and realizing this, this might benefit someone, this might benefit myself, this might benefit Leon, um, this benefits the person we're having on. And uh, it, it, feels, it feels good after maybe, or while going through that process and beginning the process. Um, and even though counterintuitively, like I, I felt like not doing it. There's a greater pleasure to uh, just breaking those boundaries. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a that's a great way of putting it. And I mean, just like recently, you know, like everybody else, and I and I like to stress this with my students because I think sometimes people need to hear that other people are struggling too. This is a hard, you know, context, social context for people to be dealing with the pandemic. Things are very different. Um, we, you know, a lot of our ordinary everyday pleasures are either transformed or they're, or they're robbed from us. We can't do them in the same way. We're concerned about things. So, you know, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed sometimes and, and things can be very stressful. And, you know, I had a, obviously I can't discuss the details, but I had a, a situation where uh, a student was having some issues and I, you know, put the student in contact with a relevant, um, you know, people who could who could help the student at the my institution um and then i i thought you know i could also follow up on this individually and you know maybe also you know give the the students some advice and encouragement i'm like you know it's been an awfully long day i'm tired i'm feeling a little overwhelmed but i thought you know what kind of teacher do i want to be do i want to be the kind of teacher who goes the extra mile when a student's in difficulty or do I want to be the one who says, look, I checked off the box, which says duly reported to, you know, the right authorities. I'm off the hook no matter what happens. And like, I, that's not who I want to be. I want to be the, the kind of teacher that, you know, uh, makes a difference in people's lives. And so I just, I found the, within myself, the, the strength to be, to, you know, contact the student and say, hey, I just want to reiterate what so-and-so you know, told you and, you know, just talk about some of my experiences in undergraduate and some of the issues I faced and, you know, how I got over them and remember, think about this over break and, you know, remember, you know, how, what a great person you are and your things you're going through, you know, many supportive kind of things like this. Um, and yeah, I was a little more tired at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, I also had the satisfaction of saying, okay, this is the kind of me I want to be, and I can look back at my life and myself and be proud of who I've become. Whereas if, if you just decide I'm the kind of person who doesn't care about anything in life, well then, okay, what gives your life meaning? What makes you get up in the morning? What makes you happy about things? You know, I'm far, I'm a very imperfect person. A lot of things I've screwed up in life, but I can look back at real accomplishments and I can have a, a sense of you know, the meaning in my life. And again, if you're just like, uh, it's all about me, 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 your life is just so thin and so narrow. There's nothing to hang your happiness on. As, as Aristotle points out, if you want to be happy, you've got to be happy about something. 
Right. And that means you have to care about something. And if all you care about is yourself, there's nothing in yourself to care about unless that self cares about something outside of itself. And that mm. can then become your joy. Right. And it also must be an awful feeling to accomplish something and not to have anybody be happy for you. Yes, exactly. I mean, and Mungza says one of my favorite lines I always think about in the Mungza, he's talking to a king and he says, he says to the king, is it? is it to enjoy music by yourself or to enjoy music with others, which is a greater joy? Mm -hmm. And the king says, well, of course, to enjoy music with others. And he says, okay, so you're enjoying your government right now just for your own benefit. Wouldn't it be a greater joy to enjoy your government with your people so that your people were actually happy about your well-being because you were a good ruler instead of them wishing you were dead because you're a ruler who makes their life miserable. And that's always struck me as a great point that it's better to enjoy things with others than to enjoy things alone. And again, you know, watch Citizen Kane at the very end, you know, the guy's a wealthy guy in a mansion and he just wants that joy that comes from simple pleasures in life and the company of others and he's lost those. Wow. And would we say that the, I don't want to, I guess I don't want to just reduce it to this, but would we say that one of the major themes of the thought experiment and the monks sort of ideas is essentially not to give up on people, that that sprout is always there no matter what? Yeah, you can always, I mean, Mungs's political philosophy that grows out of his ethics is to appeal to what is best in people. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this too is a part of Confucianism. Confucius says, look, you can try to keep people in line with threats and punishments, but the result is going to be that they're going to have no sense of shame and they're just going to become more ingenious at getting around the punishments. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you appeal to their best instincts in the long run, they will both do what they should do and do it willingly and happy, happily. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get, get too political here, but I, uh, I, I think we, we, we know this, that in many ways, the last presidential election was saved in part by just ordinary, everyday government officials who would, were just like, you know, I'd be ashamed to falsify the vote count. I don't want to be that kind of person. You know, and even if the president of the United States calls them up and says, I need these votes, their reaction is, but I, I can't do that. That's not the kind of person I am. And that makes all the difference in the world. Right. And then aren't we going back to where we started? Because essentially, I think what you're saying is that we're going to try to help inculcate sort of uh, these feelings into people who don't necessarily have them, right? To kind of help them feel ashamed or at the very, maybe not shame, because I don't like really like shaming anybody, but at least help them feel guilty, right? To say like, here's mm-hmm. how you're affecting somebody else to develop a sense of empathy in the person, because as you're doing that, right, that kind of guilt and empathy, hopefully, is the springboard toward better decision making. Yeah, and, and either guilt or, or shame can, of course, become a, a dysfunctional emotion if it's uh, unwarranted or excessive. Right. You know, but, I mean, Mengzi would say, I mean, I often translate, there's a phrase in Chinese, Mengzi uses, shou wu zhixian, the heart of, it's sometimes translated shame and disdain. But I, I think maybe to get the idea better across better, we could focus on disdain. Mengzi is saying, look, you should disdain becoming a certain kind of person. What kind of person? The kind of person who, take, who lies a lot and takes advantage of people 
and cheats people. You shouldn't want to become that kind of person. And the thought of becoming that kind of person should fill you with a sense of perspective shame. Like, you know, I wouldn't want, I'd be ashamed to become that kind of person, or I'd, I'd be ashamed to not change myself if I have this kind of weakness. Right. I love that. That reminds wow, me man. of a, uh, uh, fear setting. Uh, sorry, Leon. Uh, no, no, yeah, no, I was just, yeah, I was just gonna say, wow, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, so that that reminds me of, uh, for example, um, back to my example earlier of, uh, do I stay in bed and not do the podcast, or do I do the podcast? I have then I actually do something similar to that where I'll have a fear. One is the fear of not acting, and what does that do? How does that affect Leon? How does that affect the guest? How does that affect uh, people who are expecting some sort of consistency? Um, and all of that. And then, uh, and then what's the fear if I actually, you know, uh, do what I was supposed to do, right? Uh, just uh, perform and uh, do the podcast and, and kind of um, get into gear. Um, and it was very easy to obviously pick, uh, you know, doing the podcast because, uh, yeah, what, what's my fear there? Just, oh, okay, I, I, I'm afraid that um, I don't have the energy or, uh, wherewithal to be at my best, let's say. And the other one is I've upset so many different people. Uh, so obviously I don't want to do the one that upsets so many people. That's not who I want to be. So yeah. And sorry, Leon. Yeah. No, that was it. Yeah. I mean, I can't even believe that we went an hour literally just going on one thought experiment. They're very rich. And, and Helen's book, I mean, she's a terrific philosopher. We've collaborated on, on some projects and I was delighted to, con to contribute to this. The, and I was just looking over the table of contents in Philosophy Illustrated by Helen de Cruz, and there are so many great experiments. I know most of them, but actually there were a few that I haven't heard of before, and I'm looking forward to, to reading some more about. And each chapter is graced with a Helen's lively illustrations. So I think it's going to be a great book, and I'm looking forward to using it in, in courses. I think it's going to be very popular. Yeah, the discussions are pretty awesome on it. So like, because the thought experiment does give or take like half a page, but the discussions are really rich. Well, yeah, the reflections are where the nuances and sort of an, a, a great explanation of how to sort of interpret the, the thought experiment and then followed by questions to sort of get you to yeah. engage with it more in order to sort of work with it and, and even get an even greater understanding. Yeah. yeah. All right, Alan, questions for Brian before we wrap up? Oh, yes. Uh, so if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, where could we find Oh, uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Brian Van Norden. That's uh, Brian, one of those weird guys like Brian Cranston, Brian with a Y. So B-R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-N-O-R-D-E-N on Twitter. Um, I'm also, you can find me as Brian Van Norden on Facebook. And I've got a website, brianvannorden.com. Uh, and also I've got a bunch of um, video lectures on Chinese philosophy, mostly on uh, YouTube as well. And again, just look on that name. You'll find plenty of things online. So thank you for asking about that. Yeah, we can also, awesome. you, have a, you also have a TED-Ed video on Confucius Hour. Right? Oh, I do. That's right. I, I wrote the script for an animated TED-Ed video, uh, Who Was Confucius? Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's got a, more than a million views now. Wow. Yeah. Last time we spoke, it was up to half a million. I think it was half right. last time. Yeah. Now it's yeah. up to wow. a million. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Man. I still can't believe it. Literally all of this out of one thought experiment. Well, thank you so much for having me. I always have a great time. Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon.
Thanks. Take care. All right. Well, first of all, I have to say, one, how did the time fly? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, because honestly, I, I mean, I believe that an hour passed, but I, I don't know. I thought it was like 30, 40 minutes and we still could yeah. have gone over however many. Oh, we, yeah, we, it, it, I thought if we would cover even one more thought experiment, it would go like another 30 minutes. And I mean, it's already late, so I didn't want to be a dick about it. <laughs> well, anyway uh guys if you want to follow us you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and on instagram and it sees underscore podcast on twitter like subscribe hit the bell also uh we're on tiktok as well i keep forgetting to plug that but yeah yeah, that's the, that's the, the, yeah it's seize the moment podcast yep awesome so guys uh thanks so much for watching and have a great time see you next time